Hello, everyone. Welcome to our third webinar on the series Debunking Sex Work um, Conversations about Prostitution. Today, we're going to have two, another two very, very interesting and important guests. Now, I'm Isoya Agatise, the Executive Director of IROCO. Um, and it's very exciting to have all of you here with us today. Iroko is a multicultural NGO uh, which provides services to victims of um, sex trafficking and of domestic violence, as well as assistance to migrants generally. We provide free legal support, psychological support and shelters. Uh, we carry out research and advocacy and are members of several international coalitions, such as the Coalition Against Trafficking in Women. And we have the executive director with us today, Coalition for the Abolition of Prostitution, um, the European Network of Migrant Women, and the Brussels Call, amongst others. And the Iroko has won several awards, the last of which is the Child 10 uh, Queen Sylvia of Sweden uh, Award uh, 2021. Iroko created the film entitled Journey of No Return, which is being used as a preventative measure around the world. So, but above all, it is really important that we know that Iroko is an abolitionist organization. And these um, series of webinars that we've been holding is as a way of introducing and explaining in more detail what this is all about, what abolitionism means, what the abolition of prostitution is, as one of the first organizations to introduce the issue of abolitionist principles in Italy. We are very proud to bring you our guests today. I will now present our two speakers for today. The first is uh, Taina Bienaime, who is the uh, who has almost three decades of experience defending the rights of women and girls at national and global level. As the executive director of the Coalition Against Trafficking in Women, CATW International, she travels the world advocating before national governments and in the United Nations, urging them to invest in equality for women and girls. For 20 years, Taina was involved with Equality Now, an international human rights organization dedicated to promoting the human rights of women and girls. First as a founding board member, then as its general counsel and subsequently its executive director for a decade. Taina holds a Juris Doctor from New York University School of Law and a degree in political science from the University of Geneva Graduate School of International Studies in Switzerland. Thank you very much for joining us today, Taina. Our other strong, powerful woman is Becca Charleston. Becca Charleston, after enduring a decade of abuse and exploitation, built a career dedicated to the empowerment of survivors and focused on community collaboration at all levels. In 2013, she launched Becca Speaks Out to provide customized training and consultancy services to law enforcement, service providers, and community leaders alike. Since then, she has gained a bachelor's and master's degree in criminal justice and criminology, filed a federal lawsuit against the state of Nevada, over the legalized prostitution industry and worked with senators to advocate for the Trafficking Survivors Relief Act, 
which provides victims the opportunity to vacate or expunge federal convictions resulting from their victimization. She previously served as the executive director of a nonprofit that provided emergency housing, advocacy, and customized care to sexually exploited individuals and their families, where she managed daily operations, programming, and community outreach initiatives. In 2020, Becker's advocacy efforts came full circle when she herself was granted full pardon by the President of the United States for the crimes she was forced to commit during her victimization, reminding us all to hold steadfast to hope and to never stop fighting for justice. Thank you so much for joining us, Becca. So now um, I think we can go to our first questions and the first would be to Taina. Could you give us a bit of information about the work you do at CATW and have done in the past? So a little bit about your background. Well, thank you so much, Esoe and Eroko and everybody uh, who is behind the scenes helping us. And Esoe and I go back at least 20 yeah. years, right? We've been in this fight for yeah. a long time. And I also wanted to honor Becca and um, what she's done and who she represents. When we first started, there was no true survivor-led movement and we, we, we honor them. And I always say we couldn't do our work without them. So uh, it's, an, it's an honor to be here uh, with her and with Oroko and everyone else. So the Coalition Against Trafficking in Women is one of the oldest international organizations that by its name focuses on ending trafficking and sexual exploitation of women and girls worldwide. And what makes us unique is that we look at these issues from a um, sex-based and gender-based violence and discrimination aspects. So there are many trafficking organizations that may not have a, a gender lens and there are many, many women's rights organizations who don't address uh, trafficking and the exploitation of prostitution. And, and in a nutshell, I would say our work is really divided into three buckets, one of them, the, the primary um, uh, goal is, is, is legal advocacy, right? So we, as you mentioned, we work with national organizations, grassroots organizations around the world, um, primarily to enact national laws that is based on what is known as the Swedish model, Nordic model, equality model, abolitionist model, depending on how you want to characterize it. And we will talk about that more later and um, also legal advocacy at the UN level where we put pressure on both UN agencies and member states to implement the laws that, uh, that have been ratified to, to prevent and protect uh, women and girls' rights worldwide. And we raise awareness, um, which is a, a, a significant, I would, I would say it's probably the hardest part of our work and by the title of this, um, of, of your series, your amazing series, we understand how cultural narrative has been extremely hard to, um, to debunk around whether or not prostitution is a form of exploitation or not, or a form of violence against uh, women and girls or not. And then we, we work very closely with uh, the survivor-led movement. So we do our very best to 
um, make sure that survivors are with us at every step of the way. And um, now it's hard to even keep up with the number of survivor leaders, both in the United States and around the world, which is wonderful news. And uh, so we uplift their work. And that's that in a nutshell. <laughs> Thank you so much, Taina. Yes, it's our work is in this, without the support of survival networks and groups and survivors, our work will be that much more impossible. I mean, difficult, if not impossible. So Becca, could you, um, I'll now give you, you know, could you tell us more about your experience and um, the situation with regards to Nevada and surrounding states? Could you tell us a bit about that? Sure. I'm honored to be here as well. It's so great to see uh, you and thank you, Iroko, for hosting this event. Um, so as you mentioned in my intro, I won't go much into my story, but my, my trafficking experience began as a runaway and, and living homeless, and it endured for 10 years of my life. I, I wasn't able to get away until the federal authorities became involved, and I wound up going to federal prison for 13 months because I was too scared to tell on my trafficker. Eventually, I was able to get out. I ran from him when he was in prison. And I, I wish life got better then, but it didn't because when I left, I had a million dollars of debt in my name. I'd been arrested 10 times. I had a federal felony at that point. You know, I had no job experience. I was a high school dropout. I only got my GED because the federal prison made me. And so I had no options. So I stayed in the life. And so I can attest to what it's like being in prostitution or anything in the commercial sex industry uh, while being trafficked, as well as while being there by so-called choice. Uh, really, for me, it was a lack of choices. And so uh, obviously, I was eventually able to get my life back on track and get, get together. For me, uh, it took becoming pregnant and having a baby that, for me to be able to change my life. I, I did not have compassion on myself. And that's something that is very typical of people that are being sexually exploited, whether they are there by force or by circumstance, it doesn't matter. You blame yourself for your circumstances and you feel um, like you made bad decisions and that you're getting what you deserved. And so for me, having a, a baby to live for was the only reason I was willing to change my life. And um, since that point, obviously went back to school. I became the executive director of an organization that I um, went to for services back in 2012. I ran that organization for around three years and now have stepped away to launch my own business, which uh, is something new. So this is kind of part of my you know, beginning announcements. It's called Exploitation to Empowerment. And basically what I'm doing is launching a real estate brokerage to help myself and other survivors get into real estate as a means of economic freedom. Because whether when you've been sexually exploited, once again, whether by force or by circumstance, uh, it leaves you with very limited options when you do finally want to get out. And those options uh, are usually for minimum wage paying jobs, which when you've had tons of money pass through your hands, it, it becomes very hard to get out and live a normal life uh, with a, a minimum wage paying job. And so what I want to do is help create really meaningful economic economically sustainable programs to help women um, and, and or men, anyone that's been 
sexually exploited find true economic freedom and not have to rely on government subsidies for the rest of their lives. So that's a little on me. Um, some of my work today, um, I am actually, as you mentioned, suing the state of Nevada to end legalized prostitution. Um, I was trafficked through the legal system of prostitution in Nevada. And that, that state in America is the only place we have legalized prostitution in America today. And it's only in counties with less than 700,000 people. So in those counties, they're allowed to vote whether they want prostitution to be legal or not. And um, out of the entire state of Nevada, there's seven counties that chose to have legal prostitution. In those seven counties, there's about 21 legal brothels that are open today. And uh, I was actually sent to the legal brothels as a form of punishment by one of my traffickers. If we weren't making enough money or if we were getting arrested too much, he would send us there so the brothels would be controlling us and he knew that we would be forced to work. And so I can speak directly to the harms that take place within a legal system, as well as the byproducts that take place when you have a legal system present. The state of Nevada is 63% higher in trafficking than the next highest state because people think it's legal all over the state, even though it's not. And I'm finally at the point in my career and my life that I am ready to start holding people accountable for the harms that took place to me, which has taken quite a bit of time. So it's an exciting time. I'm so honored to partner with amazing people like Taina and so many people um, across the country to help end uh, legalized prostitution as well as trafficking. Thank you so much, Becca. Thank you so much. There's a lot in just those few words you said, and I think it's important that people understand a little because it, it takes much more, but that they begin to understand what it means to be in the sex trade because, you know, uh, status, the way it used to be, as people seem to think, it, it isn't like that at all. And that is why your words, your work is so crucial to, to what we are doing. Thank you. So um, I wanted to ask another question and uh, either one of you could answer this is just to say, what do you consider to be the most useful way of defining or identifying trafficking for sexual exploitation? Go ahead, Taina. <laughs> so okay. Define Thank you, Sarah. Um, and, and thank you, Becca, for that remarkable um, overview, <laughs> summary. Um, so, you know, whether, whether someone wants to describe human trafficking in one way or another is irrelevant because uh, human trafficking is defined under international law through what is known as the Palermo Protocol or the UN Trafficking Protocol. Um, I'm based here in New York. The United States is a, is a is a party to the Palermo Protocol. I believe there are 192 countries that have ratified the Palermo Protocol, which gives us the internationally agreed upon definition. And so it's divided into three parts, the acts, um, the means and the purpose. So basically, if you look at the definition of trafficking and I urge all of you to, to read it, 
Um, it's anybody who transports or harbors or receives or there's no requirement for movement. Many, many people still believe that trafficking requires movement. You could have been born in a building and, and never left that neighborhood and, and, and be, if you're trafficked, you are considered a, a, traffic, a trafficked human being without ever having uh, left uh, that, that neighborhood or that country or that county. Um, and then the, 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 so those are, that's the, the, the act. The means are, I would say, um, it's, it's a plethora of means also um, described in the Palermo Protocol. The most important means is abuse of power and abuse of vulnerability. And of course there, there's coercion and there's uh, um, enticement and, and all that, but it really is what we have to remember is that there's, there, there's a person with abuse of, that has the, the power to abuse another person who is an extremely vulnerable situation. And then there are form, different forms of exploitation. So there's the exploitation of prostitution. You can be trafficked for labor, um, servitude and slavery or slavery-like practices and organ removal. So that is basically the definition Part of the definition is the, the notion of consent. So consent is irrelevant to uh, one's exploitation. And that's also key to know, it's not a defense in a court of law. Um, and, and then we can talk about later on in a different section, the, the, the concept of demand, how states have an obligation to target the demand that leads to exploitation. So, so that is in a nutshell, the, the definition of trafficking. Each country or many countries have national laws that, um, that have established human trafficking as a crime. Um, there are very few countries, as far as I know, that really reflect the Palermo Protocol. Again, the, the, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act of, of 2000 has the criminal provision of trafficking is, is severe form of trafficking, which does not unfortunately uh, rise to the standard of the Palermo Protocol, although the definition of sex trafficking um, resembles it more. So I'll just stop here and we can talk about it. Oh, thank you so much for that, uh, Taina, because I know lots of people are not really aware of this. People still expect that when you talk of trafficking, you're talking of some kind of across the borders, international even, so they don't realize that trafficking can actually happen in the same place with the same people and that you don't need. And then the question of consent, I think that is extremely important so that people know about. I don't know if Becca wanted to say something about that also. I was just going to add that there's been more than 25 different types of human trafficking that have been identified uh, by the people that run the National Human Trafficking Hotline. If you just Google 25 typologies of human mm. trafficking, it's a free report. And it's just really important to understand because a lot of what we hear about is sex trafficking, which is really important, but there's a lot of different types of sex trafficking. You could be sex trafficked by your parents. Yeah. And never even leave your house. You could, it, it could be pimp controlled, which is what I was a victim of. It could be gang controlled. 
Uh, it could just be a kid that's living homeless on the streets and there is no per se trafficker, but there are adults that are buying that child or maybe buying that child a hot meal and there's really no cash exchanging hands. But in that case, that buyer is then the trafficker. And so it's really important to educate ourselves on all the different types. Otherwise, we're going to miss it, right? We only see the types that we've heard about that maybe we're missing all the other types because we don't know. Thank you so much for that, Becca. Yeah, we need to educate ourselves. I think that's a key word because there's so much in there and people need to understand that it's not some kind of fantastic, extremely obvious situations. It could just be happening right under their noses, you see. Yeah. Um, our next question is, um, can you, well, if you want to give a kind of overview of trafficking um, for sexual exploitation on a global level, that could be helpful. And then we can now talk about the relationship between trafficking and prostitution so that you can tell us what you consider the main driving force behind trafficking for sexual exploitation. Have I gone too far? <laughs> but just to, first of all, give an overview of trafficking for sexual exploitation. Okay, so it's it's important to note that, you know, we talk about human trafficking as this very obscure, complex phenomenon, and, and it is in many ways. Um, but for, for it can be overwhelming for people to understand the phenomenon of, yes. of a few points. Uh, one, no one knows how many people are trafficked around the world. Um, some governments estimate anywhere between, or, or UN agencies, right? So it's all over the map, anywhere between 4 million, according to some governments, to uh, 25 million, according to the United Nations. One uh, aspect that everybody agrees on is that the majority of people who are trafficked are women and girls, and the majority of those people who are trafficked are trafficked for purposes of sexual exploitation. So UNODC has, um, in the last six years, have had various percentages of the number of, of trafficked individuals. And again, these are detected um, uh, trafficking victims because the UN can only gather information that governments give them and, and trafficking is a crime that is hidden in plain sight. And, and especially when it comes to prostitution, it's, it's, it's very blended into our culture. So for our law enforcement and our governments and policymakers to even recognize uh, someone who's who's exploited, trafficked or not trafficked, just in prostitution being exploited by definition is is extremely difficult. There's very limited in developing protocols of identification and addressing it. But having said that, so 71% of people who are trafficked are women and girls. Um, the the anywhere between 92 and 96% of, of people who are sex trafficked for women and girls. And so you see that exploitation of prostitution is, is definitely gender-based. Now, of course, there are um, men and boys and trans women and trans youth who are trafficked, but it's, it's really the same. We're all 
talking about uh, gender-based inequality and, and abuse and the sex buyers are the same, right? It's just, they just have different fetishes. Um, so that so that's the 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 the, this, the overview of human trafficking globally. Um, when it comes to labor trafficking, what what is important is our colleagues who work on labor trafficking issues very often don't have a gender lens to the the issue in that. There, that women who are labor trafficked are acutely vulnerable to sexual exploitation and sexual violence. And when it comes to uh, trafficked women, the, the links between labor and sex trafficking are, are very often um, very intricate. It's, it's, it's very hard. You can start off being labor trafficked and then uh, actually become prostitution fodder for the people in agricultural settings or in factories or wherever people are, are labor trafficked. So just to, before I give the microphone back to, to Becca, what I like to, to tell people is that we have to look at human trafficking as a vehicle. Um, it is a, a four wheel car or, or truck or train through which traffickers or pimps or exploiters bring their victims to an end destination. So when it comes to labor trafficking, that end destination could be a farm or a nail salon or a factory. When it comes to sex trafficking, that end destination is the sex trade. And the sex trade is a very diverse, um, uh, organized criminal network of commercial sex establishments or street prostitution, escort services, brothels, pornography, uh, illicit massage parlors, the list goes on. And so that's why when we go into our conversation a little later about these conversations about distinguishing sex trafficking from prostitution, they, they are linked. One would not exist without the other. Thank you so much, Taina. Um, what you said, you know, people keep asking for statistics. You know, as if this is something that you can easily identify. I think of our experience in Iroko, where women are trafficked with several names. Each city they are taken to, their name, their identities are changed. So to really ask for statistics is really not so easy. And, and that is one of the, that is what makes it sometimes really easy for some of the uh, criminals who are involved in this. And then when you talk, you also talk about the question of labor trafficking, as you correctly said, um, we find that we've received several reports of women who are labor trafficked, but end up being sexually exploited almost always in all of those situations. So they are very, really very close. So I wonder if um, Becca wanted to also say something to this issue. I think Taina covered it. I know she has much more of a global perspective. Yeah, yeah, okay. So um, the next question was that of how you would describe the relationship between trafficking and prostitution. Um, we often hear people, um, claiming that prostitution and trafficking, sex trafficking in this case, are two completely different phenomena and should never be brought together, that prostitution has nothing to do with trafficking, that in many cases, prostitution is a choice 
and trafficking is not, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted both of you to speak to this and, you know, give us some of your perspectives on it. Um, so we have a lot of different elements of the commercial sex industry. Obviously there's pornography, there's exotic dancing at, at clubs, um, there's prostitution, there's trafficking, um, the, you know, the, there's many things around which seem to be separate issues, but they're all inextricably linked. And where you have one, you always have the other. And so with prostitution and trafficking, uh, buyers don't care whether you're being trafficked or not. Um, as I mentioned, we only have seven counties out of the entire United States, seven small counties with less than 700,000 people where there's legal prostitution in America, yet our sex trade thrives. I, I would say it, it's got to be, if not the top country, we're, we're definitely competing to be one of the top countries. And so because there are never going to be enough willing women that want to be in prostitution to meet the demand, the demand that men create by purchasing sex uh, is insatiable um, and buyers are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. And so there's always going to be victims that are brought in unwillingly to meet that demand by traffickers, pimps, brothel owners, and all those um, horrible people. I, I truly believe, though, after having worked in the sex trade, like I said, at, for a lack of options, as well as being forced to work in the sex trade, that um, when you introduce an influencer as powerful as money, choice goes out the window. The, because at the end of the day, if I can't feed my kid, if I can't pay my rent, if I don't have sex with you, then that's not choice. And after being in the sex trade for more than a decade, uh, you know, having to lay on your back and do unspeakable things for people that you would have never talked to in public. Like if you were at a bar, you would have never talked to that guy. The only reason you did that was for the money. And so I do not believe that that is a choice. What I, I believe that we should be giving those people true choices, which is obviously what I'm trying to do today with my work is providing really sustainable options. Because I think that when you do have options, uh, choosing to have sex with strangers, um, you don't want that option when you have other options. So that's my opinion. Thank you very much, Becca. And, and we, we also know that when people talk about this being a choice, they do not see what is behind it. As you rightly said, when it's either a, a, a question of living or not living. It's not a question of choosing to go into what, in essence, is a denial of that right to choice. So thank you so much for those words. Taina? Well, I don't, I don't have much to add to what Becca said, except um, that I would say it's important to look at prostitution as, uh, you know, you know a, a patriarchal creation of violence and discrimination, 
right? So we are having conversations around prostitution now that are similar to the conversations we had around domestic violence or sexual violence or rape or marital rape uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And it took millennia for our governments to recognize domestic violence as a form of uh, power and control and abuse and what was deemed as either a bad marriage or an unfortunate marriage or a choice. Right, we talk a lot about choice. Whenever um, either you know the media or who we call our opponents talk about choice, you know it. You you always have to to pause when you have a human rights violation that overwhelmingly affects women and girls, and the the the, the term choice or agency. Uh, comes up because those are the arguments that have been used against us since the beginning of patriarchy, right? So she chose to be in his room. She chose to wear a short skirt. She chose to stay with him in marriage. She chose to be uh, uh, to belong to her community and subject herself to female genital mutilation. I mean, these are very um, um, they're, they're very helpful um, arguments for a system to maintain the subjugation and, and, and violations of, uh, against women. And so we have to be very careful about, about this terminology. But, um, and then the other, the other point is that the conversation usually revolves around her. Is she 18 or not? Because a person under the age of 18 who is in the sex trade is uh, automatically deemed, legally deemed a sex trafficked individual. Um, did she choose or not? Does she enjoy or not? There's very, very little conversation around the sex buyer. The men who actually have the choice to purchase or not purchase her for his sexual fantasy. So part of the cultural narrative, narrative is to shift the conversation, to move it away from whether or not she chose, which is again, is, 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 is really fundamentally flawed to what is the system that is allowing men to purchase uh, women and girls for their sexual fantasies. And we can talk about sort of the racialized aspect of it um, a bit later. Thank you so much, Taina, for that. That is really, really powerful. The need to shift that discourse, you know, to shift it to those who really have the choice and they are the buyers. Now, the other question I wanted to ask both of you is um, that, as we know, some countries and states have chosen to legalize or regulate, as in Nevada, uh, prostitution. And often with the stated, quote unquote, intention of protecting and empowering women in prostitution. In your experience, what are some of the consequences of this policy on trafficking? As in the case in Nevada, um, the local counties and governments have become de facto pimps. They are making money off the backs of the women. 
And they promote this idea that somehow by legalizing it, you make it healthy, uh, you make it safer and healthier. Um, and it's just not true. The state of Nevada has higher rates of STIs than most other states uh, per capita. They have higher rates of homicides ending, um, of domestic violence homicides. They have higher rates of sexual assault. And so here where we have a legal market, we still see the illegal flourish. And for me, when I was working at the brothel, in order to keep it healthier, we had to have a pap smear every Thursday. Uh, we had to line up like cattle outside of a door, walk in an office, hop on a table, put our legs in stirrups and have a pap smear every single week. Plus we had to get our blood tested every single month to prove that we didn't have HIV or the AIDS virus. In the state of Nevada, you actually can be charged with manslaughter if you're a woman or man working in prostitution and you get caught with HIV, you will actually wow. be charged with manslaughter. Wow. I mean, so when we have the government and local counties, they, they step in to regulate women's bodies, which is the exact opposite of what our opponents want and what, what they're actually fighting for. They have no idea how more, how much more oppressive it will become. Um, I, the house, you know, in the legal system, the house takes so much money from you that oftentimes you are saying yes to buyers just to pay your room and board because you owe so much money to the brothel for living there and eating. Uh, you know, they control your movement. When you work in a legal brothel in America, you are not supposed to leave the property. You sleep in the same bed. You have sex with strange men in. And so they, they make you stay there in order to keep you safe when in reality, they're controlling your body and making sure you're not having sex with other people that they're not getting paid for is what they're really doing. And so this idea that a legal system somehow helps and somehow protects the, the prostituted people is just a flat out lie. It is not true. In fact, it only increases the demand. It drives the demand up because now men think that they have a right to access even more women's bodies. And so more men will come out and start buying that maybe wouldn't have bought before if it were still illegal. In my Nevada lawsuit, there's actually a man from Utah that tried that filed a motion to intervene in the lawsuit. He is a disabled man and lives in a different state, lives close to Nevada, but a different state. And he filed a lawsuit. The ACLU actually helped write his briefs and uh, he filed to intervene in the lawsuit because he felt like it was his right to be able to travel across state lines and access legal prostitutes in order for his own sexual gratification, which is amazing if you think about it, because the, the he actually proved our the basis of our lawsuit by filing this because he traveled across state lines for prostitution. But the idea that this man actually thinks that he has a, a constitutional right 
to, to, exactly. ha- to have an orgasm in a woman's body. Like that, it, it just makes me so angry because I think a lot of people as Taina and, and you have mentioned SOA that pe- people try to say this is about women's agency and that women can have uh, autonomy and make their own choices over their body. Um, which we actually agree on. Women should be able to do what they want with their bodies, but men do not have the power and control to commodify and to purchase women's bodies and then use them like a product to only be discarded after they're done. Thank you so much for those powerful words, Becca. You see, I'm just thinking of this plague that we saw that used to be in those, uh, uh, was it 18th century Italy, where they say you do not begin to, uh, um, what's that word? I have to translate this from Italian to English and back. But you you did not, uh, something about aggredire in Italian to attack the women until you pay. So after you pay, you can do whatever you want. So the idea that a system like that could actually provide protection or empowerment for women is to say it's ridiculous does not even begin to describe it. So it's really something completely out of this world, you know. And, um, but they continue to want to promote this kind of situation. I I don't know if, Taina wanted to say something more about that, about the, 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 the so, impact of this, yes. So I so saw you and I remember the good old days pre-internet when um, all the conversations in Europe were yes. happening around whether or not to legalize prostitution or, or what to do with prostitutions. So um, for the younger ones among us today, um, it was right after the fall of the wall of Berlin and the collapse of the Soviet Union that many European cities were seeing just an exponential influx of, uh, of impoverished women from Eastern European countries or the former Soviet Union coming in into their brothels. So there was this um, just massive explosion of brothels. And so around the late 90s, early 2000s, European governments picked picked and chose which uh, legal um, framework to address prostitution. And so as we know, Sweden, where prostitution was legalized at the time, recognized prostitution as a system of of gender-based violence and discrimination, and that uh, they looked at who the the prostituted population was versus who was the sex buying population and and thought what we will do is uh, decriminalize or make sure that the the people in prostitution are are not incarcerated or criminalized. We will offer services or immigration services should they need it, but we will, because it's a business, we'll target the demand. So we'll target the sex buyers. And that is why um, now seven countries have followed uh, Sweden, uh, which is a remarkable success. 
But yeah. then the Netherlands and Germany went the other way and thought exactly the way that some of these Nevada counties think is that if we legalize it, we will have better control over the violence, over the abuse, over organized criminal networks. And so 20 years later, what we are seeing in the Netherlands and Germany is an absolute disaster where up to 90% of women in the legal brothels, and of course, as Becca said, for every legal brothel, you will have uh, double or triple the number of illegal brothels. Uh, the brothels are owned and operated by organized criminal networks. The government becomes highly addicted to the revenues from the sex trade. So in effect, as Becca said, the government becomes a third party exploiter or a pimp. And what we hear from, from the ground, from law enforcement in particular, is that it is absolutely impossible to, um, to, to regulate. To regulate criminality within the brothels. And then you have all of the uh, effects on society where what's yeah. a, what governments tell you is that it's okay for men to purchase women for sexual acts. And so we look at the situation in Germany where you have multi-storied um, chain, country chain brothels where you can, uh, you have menus and and as you know, they recently uh, repealed that, but until recently for uh, 69 euros on a Friday night, you could have all the beer and bratwurst and women you wanted. You have the gangbang floor where you come with your friends and you can gang rape women. If you have a fetish for pregnant women, you can go on that floor. There is a nudist floor where the only thing women wear are stiletto heels. I mean, the list of horrors go on. And the women who live um, in or near those red light districts um, are highly susceptible to extreme sexual harassment or sexual violence. Why? Because what the government has done through legalization is told society that women are objects to be purchased, that they are not uh, fully human, that, uh, they, that you are allowed society to dehumanize, especially the most vulnerable among us for the sexual pleasure of men and the profit of the state. So, so what, once we started hearing about all these horrors of legalization, what our opponents tell us is no, 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 we're not talking about legalization anymore. We're talking about decriminalization as in the example of New Zealand. Um, we are about to publish a, a short report, a comparison between the legalized structure of Germany and the decriminalized structure of New Zealand. And what we find is that they are exactly, exactly the same. Actually, Germany has uh, more of a decriminalized um, structure than does New Zealand. So in all of these cases, what we have seen and, and governments have actually issued reports on this is that you see an exponential increase of trafficking. Because as, as Becca said, especially in 
in global north countries where women and girls have economic opportunities, educational opportunities, they are not going to sign up to go Absolutely. Uh, be in a brothel. So the demand goes high. And uh, in order to meet that demand, you have to import the supply. But frankly speaking, you know, the tragedy in all this is, is, is the loss of, of life, right? We don't even know how many uh, women in prostitution have died. Uh, they basically don't exist. And in many ways, legalization of prostitution is a form of femicide. Um, I, I strongly believe that. It is an absolute disregard for the life and well-being of, of marginalized uh, women in, in the world. Thank you so much, Taina, for that testimony. And, and just thinking of the kind of trauma that the women are, and girls who find themselves in those kinds of situations go through. I mean, it's, it's um, happily there's nowhere, no constitution as far as I'm aware that has stated that men have that constitutional right as you rightly stated, Becca, to buy women's bodies for whatever kind of sexual fantasy they have. And we will ensure it remains so, it can never be. And, and if you think of some of the practices, they, they are equal to what is described as structure in the United Nations you know, conventions, actually. So to think that this could be promoted as a kind of employment, it's, it's so infuriating. Anyway, so the other question I wanted to ask both of you is that, um, when it comes to the situations, circumstances in which Johns go to buy women, is there a separation in practice between women who've been trafficked and those who have not been trafficked? I think Becca already referred a little bit to that, but I wanted you to expand on that a little. Sure. There, John's sex buyers do not care. Sex buyers do not ask you if you're being trafficked. All sex buyers want is what they want, which may be like you mentioned, Taina, that brought back a memory uh, while I was being trafficked in Las Vegas at an escort agency. Uh, I was in my young 20s. I was very more fit then than I am now. <laughs> and I was supposed to show up to this guy's hotel room and I was supposed to be four months pregnant. He wanted to have sex with a pregnant woman. And so the agency didn't have a pregnant woman. And so they told me, to go and to stick out my belly and pretend. And so I got there and I'm trying to stick out here. I have a six pack and I'm trying to stick out my stomach. And he turned me away. He didn't want me because he wanted an experience with a pregnant woman. And so when you, when you're able, when you, when you have power and you have money, you think that you can make people do whatever you want. And the reality is that you cannot legalize or decriminalize the inherent violence and dangers out of the sex trade. I cannot tell you how many fistfights I have been in with grown men. Uh, I've maced so many men in their eyeballs. 
I have been strangled. I've been held to a wall with a gun to my head. Uh, how many times I've been robbed. Um, I mean, sex buyers, once they pay you, you cease to be a human to them and they don't care what's going on in your life. They don't care if your boyfriend or your pimp is beating you. If they don't enjoy their experience, they want to rob you and take their money back and they will fight you. So because what, what it really boils down to is once they pay you for your body, you cease to be a human. You are now a product that they just want to get what they want. And then they want to walk away and never think about you again. And so there is no protection for people in prostitution and legalizing it does not help protect those people. Thank you so much, Becca. As a policeman from Germany said the other day in a panel, he said, how do you, how do you uh, police that kind of situation? Are you going to go into the rooms? It's not possible. So anything could happen. And the question of empowering or protecting goes out the window. So th this is the reality that we need to make people understand that legalizing or regulating or whatever name they want to use, it's not going to change the reality of the violence of prostitution. And the fact that it's not really so much about sex, but about that power that the money affords buyers to use the person's body as they want. So the other question then is, um, do you think it's possible for effective legislation? I think we've spoken a little bit about that, whether it's possible for effective legislation to differentiate between different types of prostitution, whether it's so-called forced or so-called voluntary. Do, do we want to address that a little bit? I think we have more or less. Yeah. I think that yeah. it, it doesn't matter, but I see that um, uh, Sigma reformulated her question and I think it's okay. uh, aimed at, us Americans. Yes. <laughs> um, so in, in, uh, so apart from the rural counties that, um, that Becca mentioned in the state of Nevada, where prostitution is legalized only in legalized brothels, right? So you mm. can't engage in prostitution in front of the brothel or in the back of the brothel. Um, prostitution is unfortunately criminalized in every state of the United States, meaning that mm of both the, the women and the sex buyers are, are criminalized. Are so, criminalized. So, um, unfortunately, it's a state by state. A prostitution is governed at the state level. And so we are trying to change that. There are a number of states that are working very hard to get their, um, their legislators to and their governments to enact the, the Swedish Nordic equality model. Um, in, in fact, sorry to interrupt you, Taina. That's what I was just going to ask you. What kind of trafficking legislation or what kind of legislation would you advocate for in the circumstances? So, yeah. So these would be, these would be prostitution laws, not, yes, not, not trafficking. trafficking laws, right? So yes. in New York, the, what, what, is, what, was, what is brilliant about the Trafficking Act in New York is that uh, it's embedded in the prostitution provisions of the New York Penal Code because it shows mm. that they are linked. And so we are trying to strengthen that law by uh, decriminalizing just the people in prostitution. 
prostitution and maintaining the criminal provisions for sex buyers and um, adding um, offering services to prostituted individuals. Other states that are um, in similar um, exercises, so to speak, are uh, Massachusetts, Maine, um, where Louisiana. Me, me out, Becca. Wait, where for equality or decrim? That's a nightmare. Yeah, for the equality model. There are a number of jurisdictions, but what we are facing in the United States is we we are where we tend to be, <laughs> and I say this with love, but we tend to be very provincial, very insular population. And so we are having conversations around prostitution um, uh, in the same way that Europe had had it 20 years ago. Um, and so the, there are enormous, there's a highly funded, very strong um, cohort of, of opposition that wants to decriminalize uh, prostitution or the sex trade, pimping. Um, there is um, now, you know, five years ago, the term sex work, not a term that we use because prostitution is neither sex nor work, was, was only heard of in our little um, circles. And now there is not one uh, mainstream media outlet or, or television reporter who does not use the term. Prostitution has been very mainstreamed as a cultural acceptance. And so these are very, very difficult challenges. And I'm sure Becca has her share of, uh, of how, you know, can explain how difficult this battle has been um, mm. in the United States. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Taina. Becca, you want to give us a little bit more on that? Um, to be honest, I feel like uh, it's, it's definitely been, the point has been made. Uh, I uh, agree, I think, I, th I think we all agree on one thing, that women uh, should have the right to do what they want with their own bodies, but that we need to hold accountable uh, the men that are creating this problem by having that insatiable demand to purchase sex, as well as the pimps, the brothel owners, and the other third party controllers, um, that we need to hold those people accountable. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think that's it. <laughs> Thank you so much. I, I think one thing is really essential we underline. And that is the fact that, and you both in one way or the other mentioned it, the fact that we are asking that prostituted people be decriminalized. They should not be punished for situations that they find themselves in, in, in almost all of the cases without it being a choice, because we know what it means to have a choice. And so what we are saying is that those who have the power of choice, the buyers are the ones that need to be criminalized as well as the pimps. So those criminal aspects of it, 
and people need to understand this. Um, one thing that has been so important for us in our work in Italy is that we had a law as far back as 1958, the Merlin law, uh, so-called Merlin law that, you know, decriminalized women in prostitution. And this followed the struggle of this female senator in Italy, uh, Lina Merlin, who worked for many years um, to ensure that that law came into force. So that gives us some hope and has been, and it's been in 2019, the Supreme Court reinforced because it, it's a law that was un, under attack and being branded as unconstitutional, but the Supreme Court, the Italian Supreme Court now enforced that law, you know, reinforced the terms of it and said it is a constitutional law and that prostitution could never be considered a job like any other. So we are fortunate to have that and that's a good basis on which we are working. So um, there was a question that I, I had from one of the um, online uh, participants um, and she's asking, um, Nozizu is asking, in whose interest is the sex trade? And what would you say about the marginalized being the face of the call for the total decriminalization of the sex trade? Um, if, if I understand Aziz's question correctly. Yeah. So, so the sex trade is just an, an offshoot of colonization and patriarchy and imperialism, right? So if we talk to indigenous populations, um, especially here in the United States and in Canada, the concept of prostitution doesn't exist in, in native languages. There's no word for prostitution. If we look at the history, particularly the history of the United States, um, Christopher Columbus in 1492 brought prostitution with him. It is the first thing they did was to uh, sexually violate the indigenous women and to prostitute them. And this is not just in this country, which was built on human trafficking and the sexual exploitation of women of African descent, right? When, when slavery ended, um, there was still, officially ended, there was still an exponential growth of the um, black population in the US. And the only explanation is with the rape, sexual violence and prostitution of black women. So this is an extension of it. And if you look at the demographics in this country of who is in prostitution um, and who is doing the sex buying, uh, the racial disparities are, are the same where black women and girls represent 6% of the US population. And yet in many jurisdictions, black girls uh, and women represent over 50% of the prostituted populations. The same for uh, native uh, women who represent in some jurisdictions 2% of the population. And yet sometimes they can reach up to 70% of prostituted individuals. And, and this goes across the board. Right, if, if in the brothels of Europe, it's women from the global south, um, it is minorities within minorities. I mean, the list goes on. So 
we we have to look at the sex trade as uh, it, it's another source of profit off of the exploitation of the most vulnerable uh, women and girls. And, and the sex buyers here, I mean, sex buying is a community activity. Um, and again, only according to some countries, I know some countries have higher percentages, but I think on average 10 to 15% of the male population are sex buyers. So does not mean that all men are sex buyers, but certainly those who are sex buyers are frequent sex buyers and I'm sure Becca can talk more to that. So again, we go back to sort of a, a, a system of oppression, a patriarchal system that, um, that benefits governments, I'm sorry to say. And so I think that is where we come into play, activists, um, is to really um, educate people because they, prostitution is seen as an exception to violence against women when it is a cause and consequence of violence against women. Thank you, Taina. Um, I don't know if Becca wanted to add to that. Uh, there are some very interesting questions coming up and a couple of um, comments, not really questions. Uh, well, questions about what to do um, about crimes that, um, these people that, that two people who were in prostitution committed were forced to commit in prostitution. How, how, how to go about getting out of you know, those convictions, those kinds of situations. There are also questions about that. But if you wanted to add also to what um, Taina said. I do. I'm just dropping my email in the chat right now um, mm. so that I, I saw the uh, anonymous question that came in. Mm. First, let me start with saying um, the overwhelming majority of women in prostitution uh, have come from horrific backgrounds, uh, from poverty, homelessness, the foster care system. These are the people that are the most disenfranchised in our society are the ones that are most likely to become victims of trafficking. And um, so it, it, just, it just goes to show, it, it, I think everything that Taina said was just so great because even while you're in the life of prostitution, um, your value is based on the color of your skin oftentimes. And so uh, the, the darker a person's skin is, the less a, a buyer, a sex buyer is willing to pay. So what does that mean in reality? That, that person has to then have sex with that many more people to be able to hit a quota or whatever it is that their trafficker or pimp is forcing them to stay out until they make. And so the treatment, even with inside the system of prostitution, just reinforces racial stereotypes that date back, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. And um, it, it is really just... Uh, amplified within a system of prostitution. You see those old norms and those old attitudes that so many people have fought so hard to overcome that they are just alive and well within the sex trade, that those ideas and that amount of exploitation just flourishes. Um, so to answer the question, um, I believe the person was in a, in a different country, I won't say since they're anonymous, 
but I am not sure about that country, but I'm going to share my email right now. I have um, a network of attorneys that I'm connected with across the country. Uh, We're starting to see states in America pass laws that um, if you are forced, uh, like in in the state of Texas, uh, if you're forced, it's called the duress law is what we call it. But um, currently uh, in the state of Texas, you're not allowed to produce evidence at trial that you were being trafficked while you committed the crime. And so what we've seen is we have seen young person after young person uh, be tried and convicted and sentenced to life in prison for murder that they didn't even commit, that their trafficker committed, but they weren't allowed to introduce that evidence at trial. And so we're still very much heavy in that battle, even here in the States. Um, As you mentioned in my bio, that's something I'm really passionate about, obviously having a federal felony, but how many times I got arrested while I was in that life um, and how hard it is to still rebuild my life today at this point, even getting the presidential pardon was only partial relief because it still shows up on my record, you know, even right now to get my Texas real estate license, I'm fighting the real estate license board because it still shows up and I still have to explain why, uh, why those crimes happen to someone that is probably not educated on what human trafficking is. And I'm hoping that they won't hold it against me. And that it is so frustrating. It is such a triggering experience. It brings back all the years of trauma in your head. And so we're, we're advocating for laws to be passed now where victims won't ever get arrested in the first place or criminalized in the first place. Um, so I would be happy if you want to email me, whoever that was, I'd be happy to um, do my best to find attorneys and Taina may even have resources uh, to offer as well um, to help you be able to get those crimes off your record. Thank you so very much, Becca and Taina. And uh, I just want to add, if um, the, the, the person who put that question also wants to reach out to us, we can help to extend the question to those who could be of um, some support. So they shouldn't hesitate to send us a message by email um, from our website. Um, we, we don't have that much time left. So um, I just want, there was another question, another interesting question, but I think to a large extent, we've had all of the questions answered so far. Um, there is an anonymous question. How do we get smarter in our conversation with male customers about the offense of prostitution and indeed their partners? I, I'll just say I really loved what Taina said earlier about shifting the narrative of the conversation mm-hmm. that yeah. we're, we're, fo- we're only focused on the nuisance, on the, the women we see on the street that we're, we're, we don't even think about the, the men that are yeah. causing those women to be there. In the state of Texas, we're actually trying to make it a state jail felony for the first offense that a man is caught purchasing a woman for se- or anyone for sex. Currently, it is a state jail felony on the second offense. And it's been that way for two years. And we have hardly been able to enforce and use that law. Because buyers are so 
ubiquitous. There, there are so many buyers that the chances of catching the same one twice are, are nil. You, you don't catch the same one twice usually because they get smarter and they yeah. learn how to avoid law enforcement. And so we want to make it a state jail felony for the first offense uh, because these men get to operate with impunity. They get to walk around, fly across the world, purchase women for sex in any country they're in, and they get to go home to their wife and kids and never think about what they've actually done to those human beings. Yeah, this is so important to underline also. Taina wanted to say something. So that so I would just I, I would say that that is one of the steepest challenges that we face, and that is the <laughs> issue of sex buyers. Um, here we are in the United States fighting for the equality model, but if we don't get buy-in by um, by law enforcement, by by our policymakers and our legislators to actually have meaningful, aggressive um, target of sex buyers, right? Right now, sex buyers are rarely arrested. And so my fear, and I'm saying this out loud, but I shouldn't because we have to look at messages of hope, but, but, but my fear is that when we are successful in enacting the equality model at a state level, if there is no concerted effort to develop and implement programs that educate the public about the harms of sex buying, making people understand that sex buying is not a low level offense, it's actually a high crime, a, a, a very, you know, it's, it's, it's a serious crime against another person then we can find ourselves in a situation where we will have de facto legalization of prostitution because the police will not arrest um, in their minds because they don't have the framework that sex buying is harmful um, and they already, which is what is happening now, that then no one will be arrested. I mean, we obviously don't want prostituted people to be arrested but unless there are very in, intensive and purposeful collaborations with direct service providers, with survivor-led uh, organizations and, and networks, we, it, it, it could be a very dangerous situation for us. I don't know if you agree, Becca. I knew exactly what you were gonna say as you were saying it. And it is a bit scary if we're not if we're not ready to hold men accountable, then we can't change the system yet. And I think part of the uphill battle is that the, the people we need at the table are often part of that system, right? The, the yeah. law enforcement is most often male. Uh, a lot of legislators uh, are often male. So we are sometimes where the people we're speaking to are buying sex secretly on the side or have bought sex at some point in their life. And so they feel sympathetic to sex buyers instead of sympathetic to people that have been prostituted. And, and the importance, you know, just listening to both of you, it, it, it's reinforced that importance of shifting the discourse to the buyers, you know? 
the importance of letting people know that it takes two, but it's the other side, the demand, the buyers that are really responsible for what is happening and should be the ones to be held accountable. And we need to keep up, keep on educating, 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 raising awareness about why it's so important to have the abolitionist law, the equality law. Um, one question I just wanted to ask, although to a large extent, um, speaking with both of you, you've covered it, but just as a way of rounding up, we like to ask this to reinforce, you know, <laughs> the, the messages that you've already given so fantastically well. And that is, what do you find to be the best way to debunk the widespread notion of prostitution as quote unquote sex work. I was gonna let you go first, Tana. <laughs> you, you know, okay. um, I was I was saying this in another panel I attended. Right now, there are many conversations in this country and and elsewhere. Every every country that has colonized the global south is having conversations around race and uh, the impact of racial discrimination. Part of that language of that conversation is a conversation about language, right? How do, you, how do people describe themselves? How do governments characterize um, certain people in order to dominate them or or just change, you know, we're talking about narrative, just change the narrative about the circumstances of that person's life, right? So we've seen, for example, throughout history, how uh, people define African-Americans or how they define themselves in this country. So there's this um, author by the name of Isabel Wilkerson, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist who wrote uh, this, amazing book called Cast, and it is about, um, it, it's about the racial history. I don't know if, if people have heard of it, C-A-S-T-E, and she examines the caste system in the U.S., uh, in India, and then also looks at um, the issues of the Holocaust. And in the book, she talks about how governments shapeshift uh, language or definitions to hide um, to hide forms of discrimination or to get people to be blind about um, the impact of looking at people as inferior. And when I read that, it struck me that the term sex work is exactly that. It is a term that was specifically designed to hide the uh, the harms of prostitution. It is a term that mainstreams the prostitution as something that is acceptable. That's something that is marketable, such as Pretty Woman or the Hustlers, and you know, plethora of other um, cultural fodder that makes us believe that this is glamorous and and that it's not a human rights violation. And, and, and that's why it, it, it's just so painful to me when I hear the term all the time, as I mentioned before, it's ubiquitous, but we have to remember that it is a term that um, is aimed at maintaining 
the system of prostitution and the exploitation of prostitution. And it is a term that again, dehumanizes uh, women um, specifically for comfort in not fully looking at the pervasive psychological, medical, um, physical harm that sex buyers and pimps and traffickers and the system of prostitution itself imparts on human beings. Wow. Becca? So in Nevada, um, where sex work has become a job like any other, what we see is brothels advertising at high school job fairs, soliciting girls that are still virgins to come work at the brothel so they can auction off their virginity. We have brothel owners that um, Dennis Hoff, who was an infamous brothel owner in Nevada, who died a couple years ago. Um, he bought all the town's police cars. When you think about coercion and wow. making sure that your business stays active, that's a, that's a great example. A, a gentleman, I won't call him a gentleman, a man that's still alive today, he's a brothel owner, Lance Gilman, he's also the county commissioner in his county. Uh, you know, and what they do are things like take all the women out into the desert and give customers, sex buyers, paintball guns. And whichever girl you hit with a paintball, you get to get whatever service you want from her. And so when, when it, prostitution is a job like any other, that is the kind of climate it creates and the kind of attitude it creates toward women's bodies. And even people that are being actively prostituted, we are not immune to that, to that. We see that. And the lie that we believe we get up every and look ourselves in the mirror is that we're sold this illusion of power somehow by making people pay us for our bodies, that we're taking our power back. When in reality, like we've talked about, uh, there is there is nothing powerful about running around in the desert naked and being shot with paintball guns, right? There's nothing powerful about laying on your back and doing things for people that you wouldn't look at twice in public. And so it, it becomes extremely dangerous when we try to normalize it or even worse, glamorize it and um, think that those people are living happy lives. And it it takes time and healing away from the sex industry for you to be able to actually process your experiences and be able to heal number one, but also look back and realize like, no, I, I actually never woke up one day and said, I wanted to be a prostitute. Those are things I was forced and manipulated and coerced into doing. Wow. 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 It's numbing when you, when you think of some of these things, it really numbs you. Well, we've come to the end of today and we could go on and on and on. I want to say huge, huge thank you to both of you, Taina and Becca. It's been awesome. Really, really awesome. And I know we've not been able to cover all of the questions because time is what it is and we, we have to stop. But I want to thank you for the bottom of my heart on behalf of myself and my organization and all of those who've joined me to you know, organize this. I want to thank you so much for this really, really powerful session. 
I want to thank our interpreters who've done a fantastic job, who've been able to keep behind us. I want to, to thank my members of staff who's, who are working even now behind the scenes to make sure everything goes smoothly. And above all, I also want to thank our attendees who took the time to listen. And I hope that they are able to take a lot away from here and to remind them that the series will still go on. This is the third of a seven series um, of um, different uh, interventions of different powerful speakers from around the world. So I'd invite you to join us for next Thursday, um, 10th of June at 6 p.m. Central European time, which is 12 noon Eastern um, EDT time in the US where we'll talk about trauma and prostitution with Dr. Ingeborg Krauss and Fiona Broadford. And we promise you another powerful uh, uh, session. So thank you, Becca and Taina, and hope to speak to you soon. Thanks a lot for joining us. Bye-bye, everyone. Have a lovely evening. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye.